Welcome to the Holden Village Podcast. Holden is a community of education, programming, and worship located in the remote wilderness of the Cascade Mountains. These snapshots provide a glimpse into the learnings taking place in our community. Let's tune in to this week's highlight. My name is Jeff Grip. I'm a professor of communication at the University of Portland. And um, I come up to Holden and teach about intercultural contact a lot, and not just international contact, but contact across social barriers that we build. One of the barriers that we have a lot of trouble with is uh, race, uh, the race we perceive on ourselves and other people and determining who's in my in-group and who's in my out-group. And uh, we do that in a bunch of different ways. But what I'd like to talk about in this podcast are uh, one of the things that we commonly do, uh, we meaning people of privilege, that would be pretty simple to stop doing. Um, it's not asking very much. And uh, it's a phenomenon worth learning about, understanding the harms of, and learning how to mitigate and work around. So we can do that all in just about four or five minutes, uh, figuring out here. I learned a lot of this, first of all, from recently from uh, scholars Allison Bailey, who's a philosopher, and uh, Robin DeAngelo, who's become a popular voice around notions of white fragility. Dr. Bailey's talks are mostly about white talk which is a cluster of speech patterns that U.S. white people perform. And we repeat them over and over and over in conversations about race, and they effectively shut down conversations about race. So that's what this is going to talk about is um, what is white talk, first of all. Um, Phrases like this, and when you hear one in isolation, you think, oh, that's just somebody talking. But when you hear it over and over and over and you recognize that people sometimes look at each other in solidarity and kind of nod with one of these phrases as a way of affirming, like, I'm right, right? This is crazy. I don't have to deal with this. Things like, I have, I have friends that are Asian, right? My church does good work in the poor part of our town. You know, I'm a good person. I'm not prejudiced. Trust me, my heart's in the right place. There's no problem here. Or just skeptical questions. You know, somebody tells you something they've witnessed or experienced, and we come back with some, like, well, you can't prove that that happened to the person because of race. Could it have been for some other reason? Right? So, we have all all sorts of things that we routinely say to each other that uh, they sound like they're advancing the conversation, but really they're ending the conversation. They're ways of saying... I don't want to talk about this. I'm skeptical about it. I'm a good person. I'm not going to understand this stuff at a systemic level. I'm just going to respond to it as though it's about um, the sort of person I am and the sort of choices I'm making. So when we use phrases like the ones I was just giving, some samples I got from uh, Dr. Bailey, uh, this is stuff that's used to dismiss counterarguments. It functions to silence, to interrupt It functions to collude with other uh, white people in creating kind of a solidarity against having to do any kind of movement around this or engage the issues that are actually causing the phenomena to occur in the first place. So one way to describe the problem is to say it's offering epistemic closure, which basically just means I'm not going to go there. So when I say something skeptical in response to your storytelling, or I remind you that I'm a good person, or that I'm the one showing up and other people aren't showing up, uh, that's meant to uh, sort of stop any further exploration rather than continue the exploration. And really what this is about is power. 
So when I'm using phrases like that, what I'm doing is I'm encouraging uh, a certain way of uh, determining who gets to decide which issues are important, which things get to be part of our story. And that's really the one of two harms of white talk. Um, one is exactly that, that we're members of communities. And one of the things communities do with each other is that we create knowledge together. We create taken for granted things that we just assume everybody knows. If you're going to walk through a doorway and somebody's coming the other way through a doorway, you both kind of know how to navigate that doorway when you're in your home culture. It's one of the things that might surprise you in another culture. You might bump into somebody in a doorway or be surprised at something that happens because you're still applying your own episteme, right? Your, your community of knowledge. Um, but you may be confronting a different one. So one of the harms of this uh, white talk is that we are then uh, deciding that some stories don't get to join the stuff that we take for granted. We don't hear testimonies about everyday microaggressions that people of color experience. Um, those things don't join our shared knowledge base of taken for granted. It's things we just expect everybody to know. They're always up for debate. And that's different. That's a different level of knowledge. And that certainly is a power thing. I'm just actively keeping those things out of our common knowledge base. A second real harm is it tends to personalize racism as something that is um, only down to my own personal goodness. Um, and that, of course, it lets me out of the conversation because I sound like I'm on the right side of things. But I'm also not really uh, doing anything about what, what could be done here. Um, this is what um, Robin DeAngelo describes as white fragility. She and some others use this term to say it's very difficult to talk about talk to privileged people about race and racism. We make it so miserable for other people to talk to us about those things that they very seldom do. And again, that, you know, that functions pretty powerfully too, to keep those things out of the, um, out of the common knowledge that we have. So aside from missing out on the common knowledge, what it also does is uh, it helps us to steer the conversation back to meritocracy, back to our own goodness, back to kind of one size fits all discrimination, right? Well, I'm poor and I'm discriminated against too. It's all the same. Um, that allows us to do what uh, W.E.B. Dubois called flutter. I love that term. Just sort of dip down and touch racism in a way that recenters my personal goodness, makes me feel good about talking about racism, doesn't make me feel like I'm a bad person. And it sounds like I'm actually doing something. But in fact, I'm not really doing much at all when I'm doing those things. So those two kinds of harms come from if my default setting really is just to offer one of these sort of standard ways of talking in response to other people's stories, skepticism or dismissal or broadening or personalizing rather than just hearing it um, from other folks. And really, you know, the, the things I'm going to finish with here are really the stuff is sort of the least we can do in conversation. This really is the absolute least we could do. This is not asking very much of me as a privileged person. Um, when I am trusted with stories of uh, upset, I'm trusted with stories of uh, perceived aggression, maybe I'm called out or better yet, maybe I'm called in about something uh, that I've done that's hurtful. Uh, it really behooves me to be curious about that rather than defensive about it and shutting it down. Um, those are opportunities to think more about what could I learn from this? What's here? So, here are a few suggestions that come both from Dr. D'Angelo uh, and Dr. Bailey. Uh, I think there are five. 
Yeah. One is don't confuse showing up with job done. Just because I'm somebody who's in the room and interested, um, that isn't enough. The puzzle is much more complicated than that. It runs a lot deeper than that. It's a great first step, but don't assume that I'm one of the good people and I'm here and that's all you need is to know you're a good person. We actually need more, right? It's not a lot to ask. Secondly, do imagine what facing white talk does to bodies of color as they move through the world. Um, they've got a daily drip of microaggressions they experience and very little uptake from influential systems and influential people. You even watch people of privilege just get tense, physically tense in the presence of people of color uh, when race comes up. And of course, that's red, right? People notice that and say, you know, what that looks like is it's not worth me knowing those things. And I know when I shut down, I hurt you and I'm still willing to take that opt-out position. So, a second thing to suggest here, aside from not confusing showing up with job done, is to work on empathy, to think about, you know, how might I respond in a way, in a way that puts me more in that person's shoes instead of offering something from certainty that says, I already know what this is like. That's the third suggestion, actually, is to adopt a loving rather than kind of an arrogant stance or a certain stance toward things that are happening in the world. Rather than dominate and presume rightness in what you know and are doing, prioritize getting good at taking some conversational risks, right? Looking to be called in or called out even when needed and relish those as possible for you. Learn from those mistakes and try to live into the power of being vulnerable rather than being perfectly armored in every situation. That's really a different kind of response, but it's, it's not that difficult once you start trying to do it, talking yourself into seeking more rather than less information. If you do get called out on something, be curious about it. It's interesting and it puts you in a better space here. We're cleaning up our communication isn't going to eliminate 500 years of deep structural racism, but there are some things we can do in our communicating about race that actually makes some of the structural work easier and better. Two more. One is be less interested in assigning blame or responsibility, but do be interested in finding a loving way out of the situation, right? Things are tough. We need to find a loving way out of this rather than thinking, well, who's at fault, right? The temptation is to say, well, my ancestors never owned slaves, <laughs> but that doesn't really do us any good. That doesn't get us anywhere. We've got an issue happening right now. How can we work our way through this one without looking back at, at fault and blame? Let's just treat it as a problem. The ball's gone over the fence. How are we going to get the ball back? It doesn't really matter how the ball got over the fence. And finally, one real shorthand way that I find works really well, works for me, I don't know how it'll, it'll work for you, is do think of communicating in these situations as though you're communicating with someone you love, Right? So if your best friend says that you've hurt that person, your first response might be to reflect and apologize instead of to get defensive and come up with excuses. That's not something we do with people we love when we are actively loving those people. It doesn't matter in the moment if that person is right or wrong. That's not the issue. When someone you love is hurting, um, you listen, right? The correct response to marginalized truth-telling isn't, are you sure that was about race? But rather something like, are you okay? Is this something we need to have a conversation about in our community, right? So, thinking about if you can just talk yourself into an attitudinal space of curiosity and care, uh, that changes a lot of what you're tempted to offer in the midst of interactions. So, white talk is one of the things that we, we do because we can. It's easy. Um, and 
these antidotes to white talk, again, they won't fix structural racism, but they do invite the conversations that let the good problem solving continue across barriers that we ordinarily let trip us up. Um, they help us be braver in interactions with each other. They help us be more resilient. And life just gets a lot easier when you quit pretending that you've been immune from all these forces that are actually messing with everybody's perception in the world, regardless of whether you're privileged or uh, oppressed in any areas of identity. We're all breathing the same air. So uh, it's it's kind of freeing, actually, to get in a position where you're not so worried about those pieces. These are some conversational ways to help yourself experience that space over and over and over. Best of luck. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.